I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Rebecca Carroll rocked my world with an op-ed in the Washington Post entitled, As a Black Woman Raised by White Parents, I Have Some Advice for Potential Adopters. Her advice was as blunt as it was raw, and it was a microcosm of her book, Surviving the White Gaze, a memoir, all about how she went from the cute, precocious, black adopted daughter of white parents who created an idyllic world of their own to a black girl and woman trying to navigate the world as it is. This is a terrific conversation I cannot wait for you to listen to right now. Rebecca Carroll, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I had to get in touch with you after reading your incredible, incredible op-ed in in our paper, in the Washington Post. The headline is, as a black woman raised by white parents, I have some advice for potential adopters. Let's start from the 50,000 foot level. Why write this piece? So as soon as people started talking about this racial reckoning, I thought, well, are we reckoning or are we reckoning, right? And transracial adoptees, particularly Black transracial adoptees, have an integral perspective on race and reckoning. We have lived, especially adult Black adoptees, have lived in this foundational dynamic in which we are trying to um, trying to be connected uh, and trying to also be who we are while also mitigating oftentimes our white family's racism. And so that perspective, I think, is really important in this moment as we try to build on reckoning with race and changing the way that we talk about race and racism okay we're gonna pull we're gonna pull back to seventy-five thousand foot level and talk about the book that was the inspiration for this uh for this op-ed and the name of your book is surviving the white gaze a memoir so before we get into the things that you put into into the piece tell the listeners who are who are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and thank God I know. Because <laughs> I don't recommend writing a memoir unless you know who you are. Um, I, I uh, am a woman who, who was raised, um, who was adopted as an infant um, into a white family. Um, white parents who were uh, artists and naturalists and hippies who had had two biological children and wanted another. Um, because they had no conventional framework in place, it was easier to adopt a child of color. And then a sort of um, serendipitous, you could say, or insane, you could also say, circumstance presented itself, wherein my father, my adopted father, was an art teacher in high school, and one of his students became pregnant with her Black adopted, I mean, her Black older boyfriend, um, and she didn't have a plan. And my dad said, here's what we would like to offer you. Um, she changed her mind. She agreed, and then she changed her mind, and then she changed her mind again. Um, my adoption did not become legal until I was three. Um, and then at 11, I reunited with her. <laughs> That's the nutshell. 
but also yeah. not just raised in a white family, but in a, a rural white town, an all white town. I was literally the first black resident of the town as an infant in 1969. And this is in the state in New Hampshire. That's right. So not only the, the, like a, a white state, yeah. like a very, a very white state. And you met your, your birth mother at 11. Um, and if I remember right, in your, I watched your interview with Trevor Noah, and in that you said you you didn't meet another black person until you were six. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a dance teacher, a ballet teacher, um, who uh, had a small studio in a, a, a you know a, t a town slash small city about twenty miles away, um, and. Uh, and I, I write about this in the book, of course, but just having this moment prior to, to meeting her, I had seen Electric Company, uh, I had seen Easy Reader uh -huh. on Electric Company and had this moment of just like, I mean, it was almost terrifying how attached I felt to his visage and then hers without having any real context um, for why, right? And because it would, as, as I said, you know, it felt like being in community, I say that now, I didn't know how to say that then, with Blackness meant giving something up. And what that was, what that would have been, and I would have given up, is the kind of proxy and proximity to whiteness, where that will that will make you believe it's going to have your back or save you, but never does. Ooh, talk more, talk more about that. <laughs> well, so when I was really young and precocious and cute. Um, and, um, you know, my parents and their friends all thought that I was just darling, just this beautiful gem, this exotic child. Um, and then when we kind of left this bubble of where we where we spent the first six years of my life on this, in this farmhouse on Pumpkin Hill, which was every bit as uh, idyllic as I write about. And that's why I opened the, the book with that chapter, because we were, we lived in this bubble uh, that was almost curated in, in, in a way, you know, it was, it was stunning and it was um, imaginative. It was creative. It was void of race, but for me. And so when we moved to another place and, and within a year or two, my, fifth grade teacher told me that I was very pretty for a black girl and that most black girls are ugly, oh. unattractive. So my point in the proximity to whiteness is that my parents and their friends chose to see me in a certain way. They chose to not see my blackness, which ultimately did not protect me from the te my teacher racism, my friend's racism, another teacher's racism. Um, but there is this, this idea, this false notion that whiteness, and this is, a, this is a function of white supremacy, of course, will protect you if you're on their side. Mm -hmm. But they never do in the end, at the end of the day. And, and you know, not to harp on, on Trevor's um, <laughs> terrific interview, but I think it was in that interview where you talked about you just mentioned another teacher's racism. Were you referring to the your prom your, your prom date's father, who is a history teacher? 
history teacher. That's right. U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Would not let him take you to the prom. So it was, and I, it's almost ridiculous. And I, and I sort of riff on that in the, in the book, which is that he forbid him. Right. And I was like, forbid him? Like whose parents forbid their kid from going to the prom? Why forbid? Um, but yes, he was absolutely, um, he was absolutely determined to stop his son from taking me. You know, we went anyway, but, but it was, um, okay. the fun was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it had gone. The ship had sailed. Mm -hmm. The thrill is gone. So you yeah. just mentioned a moment ago how to your parents' friends at a certain point, you were this young, cute, precocious, exotic um, creature in their midst. You know, their friend's cute, exotic daughter. At what age or what was the incident where you went from being cute, and precocious to, I don't know, a four foot Angela Davis. Right. <laughs> Absolutely that, what you just said. I do, I do think it was that moment where, um, you know, my friend and I were, uh, were playing, it was recess. It was, you know, in the fifth grade, we were 10 years old. Um, and we went to pause and see how much more time we had. And the teacher on duty said, uh, you know, on chaperone duty said, we have a little more time. And she said to my friend, you're such a pretty girl. And then she looked at me and she said, you're pretty too for a black girl. And that was the outfacing racism. But what I internalized was what she said after that, which is that most black girls are very ugly, are unattractive. And so that was the moment where I was like, you know, my friend and I looked at each other like, what, what is she talking about? I don't like, you know, and I didn't have any, any way to engage with that. Nobody was talking about how I would be perceived or how I would need to manage myself or these kinds of, you know, I feel sometimes, I felt sometimes as I was writing the book, like Neo from, you know, the matrix, like, just like, you know, like t hitting, the, getting these, you know, right. <laughs> these things flowing at me and just dodging them and coming, standing back up. But that's what it felt like because I didn't have, I only had myself. Your parents didn't talk to you about anything race related. Didn't like for me, you know, my mom sat me down for the talk. You didn't have any any kind of talk. No talk. Well, What's so you can be damn sure I sat my own son down for the talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but your own parents not 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 for a moment. They no, pretended like it wasn't it was wasn't there. I love, I, it was not there, but I love that you said, when did you become a four foot Angela Davis? Because it did feel that way. Like it's, when I started to be inquisitive or, you know, I, how, do, how am I gonna manage this is what, I, is what I started to think. Like, where are my resources? Like, and so I would say to my parents, what were you thinking? I'm really, I'm really curious. Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> and they would say, you know, it was, this time of hope where Martin Luther King was bringing everybody together, right? And I'm like, yeah, and then he was shot, right? Like, so <laughs> <laughs> then what, you know? And and I, I didn't really realize how much of a burden it was to them for me to press and press and push. And it's, you know, it's become literally my life's work, right? But But as a kid as a teenager as in my young 20 in, in my you know um as I was trying to navigate 
this existence and this identity, you know, it was just exhausting, absolutely exausting. You'll read in, I mean, in the book, I, I, I think, um, I don't know whether you've had a chance to read it all or not, but, but you, you'll, you'll see the arc of when I sort of hit a wall of mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Well, okay, so I have not read your book because my first interaction with you was through the opinion piece in the Washington Post. And so let's now that now that people have a sense of who you are and your story and your history, now the the what you write in the piece, they have something to hang on to to understand where is this where is this coming from? What gave your and what gives your piece in the in the op-ed piece so much power is that it's unflinching. What you write yeah. is unflinching. And you just mentioned Martin Luther King. Your, your parents said, you know, it was a time of hope and Martin Luther King. And you said, well, he got shot. And one of the things you write in the piece is, um, good intentions are not parenting skills. And Martin Luther King Jr. did not die. So you could use your admiration for him to defend your failings. Well, you know, I mean, that that's a two-parter there, right? Which is mm-hmm. that Martin Luther King gets evoked all the time by good white liberals as a way of sort of saying, you know, we care, we're, we are liberal, we, Black Lives Matter. I mean, he he gets used for a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, after a while, just pisses me off. You know, it's not, it, it, he didn't, he didn't do what he did for you to then just pick and choose when you evoke him to cover your own failings. That good intentions are not parenting skills. They just aren't, and period, across the board, whatever your racial makeup. But when it comes to, again, going back to this foundational dynamic, right, of white people making choices for black folks who don't have a voice. Now, obviously, as I said in my in my interview, since we're we're referring to the Trevor uh, Noah interview, I'm not likening transracial adoption to slavery. Right. I am saying that the dynamic between black and white people is foundationally it, the power differential is foundational, and so when you are when it plays out in workspaces in in uh, in any in any space, but particularly in a family, it's really hard, and it requires rigorous interrogation, compassion, empathy, 
discomfort, you know, and that's the choice you're making. And I think that there's a whole, you know, a whole wave, a whole generation of in my parents, um, at my parents' age who thought we're doing this amazing thing. We're doing this great thing. And it's all about love and love will be the answer. And love is lovely, <laughs> as I wrote in a piece, but it does not, um, it, it does not shield uh, from the deeply rooted systemic, you know, racism and white supremacy in this country. It just doesn't. There's another, and, and here's, here's another one that when I read this, I was just like, damn. Um, <laughs> you write, please do not suddenly start acquiring black friends after you adopt a black child. And if you didn't have any to begin with, meditate on that. Can you, I mean, really think about it, Jonathan. Can you imagine, like, what, what how would that make sense? Like, suddenly I know how to raise a black person, a black child into a black adult, but I don't have any black people in my life. That just makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, and so, and the idea of just then acquiring or, or you know, searching for, I mean, first of all, black folks are going to be on to you, right? You know, I have spoken to my share of, of white uh, adoptive parents and, and, and one woman said to me one time, she's like, well, I keep trying to be friends with black people and they just, they just don't want to. And I said, yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that approach is not going to work. You go on to write, if you had a casual black friend in college, but didn't maintain that friendship into adulthood and only reference said friend when asked by your black child why you don't have any black friends as an adult, you're exploiting that black friend to make yourself seem less racist, less racist. And that is racist. Correct. Right. That person, that relationship that you had, however, 20 decades ago, you is not yours to use. You don't get to then decide that person who you didn't cultivate a real relationship with, you get to exploit that? Like, that doesn't, that's unfair. And it's also racist. Um, you also um, have, talking to the adoptive, the adoptive parents, your naivete may be legitimate, but if you legitimately don't understand how systemic racism works or the ways in which it will target your child specifically and often, then maybe you shouldn't adopt a black child. And I mean that in the kindest way possible. That, and you know what? That is the kindest thing um, to tell potential adoptive white parents that you have to understand what you're doing and how, how you're going to raise this black child, whether you don't see race or color or whatever, the world does. So you gotta think about that. It's also so presumptuous. It's just so presumptuous. And it also fits so tidily into the dynamic of this country, which is that, you know, white is right. And whatever white people decide, they set the, they set the tone, the standard, the, the canon of literature, the industry standard, the, you know, what is, what is beautiful, everything, right? And so 
it's sort of like, well, we don't really have to because ultimately whiteness is, is what is actually correct and what will win. And this goes back to though, this notion of for us, for black adoptees, like, okay, so you've got our back, right? Like, that's what you're saying. You've got our back. But then when we grow up and start calling you out, you don't. Right. Because right. ultimately right. it's, you know, ah, do we really have to think about that? Do we have to? Well, you do, you know, I mean, one of the things that has been a struggle for me in writing this book is that, you know, my parents or my mom especially has, has said, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. We just wanted another kid. And I'm like, this is the kid you got. <laughs> this is the kid. Right. So if you're not prepared to have a grown ass black child who is calling out systemic racism, both in, you know, in the world and in your family, I mean, it's going to be really, really difficult. Another thing you write is please don't characterize us in ways that set up, set us up for further stereotyping. Characterize how? So I, this, I, I heard, and, and, and one of my, it's not a pet peeve, but it is definitely something that I think about um, a lot. And that is sort of the, the celebrity, um, white celebrities adopting black children and, and raising them in these kinds of bubbles, um, real bubbles. Right, exactly. But one uh, white adoptive mother said something on a talk show about her black daughter and she described her as a spitfire. And I just thought that is not innocuous. If you are identifying your nine-year-old black girl as a spitfire, she's gonna internalize that. And then later she's going to be called a angry black woman because they're connected. I think it's so important for people to understand how stereotypes manifest and how they become. And in, in this particular context, it's just, um, Spitfire indicates there is that she is unlawful or perhaps um, overtly um, even even adult or adultified. You know, I, mm. it just it was such a visceral response for me when I heard that, and I, and I just I think we have to be everybody has to be, but but white adoptive parents need to be really mindful of their of their language. Um, and mindful of how they don't know how to talk about their black children, um, and then be a, a, be willing to own that. Well, let's talk more about language because you also say be careful how you engage with modern tropes, or perhaps more pointedly, resist the urge to turn a phrase black people made and love and feel good about into a trope. Black girl magic looks different through a white lens. Yeah, I mean, and so does you know Black Lives Matter. That's why I mean we wouldn't have we wouldn't have established <laughs> these phrases or these ideas or this language if we didn't need it for each other and us, right? So I mean, there's lots of of, of conversation and op eds and whatnot about the ways in which our phrases and words get co opted, appropriated, exploited. Um, but so I I'm, I'm saying to white parents don't do that, right? Don't use those, those things that we have made and that we want to keep for ourselves. I know that we can't um, fend off, you know, the Kardashians or mainstream America or pop culture from 
from taking our language and our words, because that's sort of the MO of this country. But in the family, in your family, right? Like I cr always cringe at, at white adoptive parents of black girls, particularly. Um, but you know, when there's, when they post them on Instagram or whatever and be like, black girl magic. It's like, it's, it's so, <laughs> it's so cringy to me. It's not yours to say. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's the same with what I, what I was saying about hair, right? It's like, yes, learn how to do the hair, but also teach us how to do the hair and then find someone who can have that ritual with your child because it's so deeply important. I remember, um, by now it's a little more than 20 years ago, lesbian couple, white lesbian couple friends, uh, of ours adopted, um, a little black boy, biracial boy, so cute. And one of the first things they did, they called, they called me and they said, okay, what do we need to do? Um, because he's black and we want to make sure that, you know, we get this right or try to do it right. The first thing I said was, you got to find a black barber. Mm -hmm. And then I said, you must use lotion. Because if I'm telling you right now, if a black woman or anybody black, but particularly a black woman sees your child with ashy skin anywhere, they're gonna say- <laughs> Wait till you read my book. Yeah, totally. <laughs> they're gonna say something to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's still now, now Benjamin's in his twenties and, you know, we still laugh about that. Last time I talked to one of the moms, we got a good chuckle out of that. That's interesting thing too, right? About, it's about ego too. You know, you have to, you have to set a, yourself, your ego aside because you, you can't do everything. You know, yeah. of course, as parents, we want to be able to do everything for our child, but you, in this instance, you really, really can't, you mm. know, and you have to be able to share some of that, ex some of that real um, intimate uh, experience with somebody else who's not necessarily your family. Right. So l let's talk about putting ego aside for a bit, because you you have said that in order to write your memoir, you had to, quote unquote, get grown. Mm -hmm. What did you have? Talk about what that means to get grown. What did you have to deal with in order to actually do this, do your memoir? Oh, wowza. Um, uh, I think, I mean, we talk about a lot about agency, of course, and truth and owning your truth and this and that. And I just, you know, I have a lot of, um, a lot of younger um, adoptees say to me that it's, you know, that they, can't believe how how easy I make it seem that I'm in telling these hard truths and and I often say do not underestimate maturation <laughs> <laughs> um, you know wisdom and growing evolving right you you know being willing to evolve and um, and I think that's what I had to do it very much very much about becoming a mother myself very much um, realizing. Uh, you know, there's there's an anecdote in the book where, um, you know, after Mike Ferguson was was murdered, uh, my Mike son, Brown who in Ferguson. Michael Brown, sorry, my yeah. <laughs> after Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, my son, who was probably nine at the time, said, 
are we going to get shot because we're black? And what that in, unleashed in me, the kind of rage and protectiveness and ferocity, the confluence of those feelings I had never experienced before. And then just the idea of how nonchalant my parents, loving, lovely people, talented, beautiful people, how nonchalantly they went about their lives and not thinking about Michael Brown or me or my children or you know, when I was growing up and it just, I, I never felt, and that made me feel like, okay, you're grown now. <laughs> you're grown now. You're going to, you're going to tell your child the truth. And then you're going to face some, some, some memories and stitch it together. And I very much thought this would be a, an offering to my parents. It has not been received as such. And I was going to, and I was going to ask you about that in terms, you know, again, more about about ego. Talk more about your parents' reaction. They go on. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You go ahead. <laughs> They're not happy. Uh, they have not received it in the spirit with which I wrote it, um, and and that's tough, you know. Um, but if I if if having excavated you know 30 years of my life through you know i was a devout journaler through journals and letters and you know my own vivid memory um and being as radically compassionate as possible if they don't get it through that effort mm. then i have to let that be what it is you know um and you know i think for my dad it's very much about ego it's very much about him kind of, you know, deciding to create a world in which we lived um, uh, according to his sense of, of beauty and um, the natural world and, um, you know, a sort of, um, he was a very, he, he, he is a, a, has a very outsized ego and thought he was creating something extraordinary. And that's cool. And some of it was, but that doesn't mean there aren't going to be, your kids aren't going to have questions. In fact, the more extraordinary it is, I would say the more questions, you know, a, an engaged person would have. Um, so yeah, it's been a little tricky. A little tricky, but has it changed your, has it changed your relationship at all? Or is it, oh, you know, totally. but in, in, how so? Um, <laughs> well, um, my mom used to, I mean, obviously there are factors involved, the, the pandemic and they're getting much older, but my mom used to come to New York from New Hampshire at least four times a year to visit. There is no talk of, of visits in the future. Um, my dad and I don't speak, um, but that started had started to unravel um, a few years ago when I first started to kind of bring these things up in the family in, you know, when we would visit, um, to New Hampshire, when, when my son was very young and my son was starting to say things like, why is everybody white here? Why is there no indication whatsoever that, that my grandparents raised a black child, you know, like he started to ask things and it just became really hard to, to, um, to, 
engage in, in, in a way that didn't make them feel defensive and that was, you know, intellectually, emotionally productive. I'm so, sitting, yeah. I'm sitting here writing myself this question to make sure I don't forget it, but it is, what does it say that even white liberals who adopted a black child, like the, the message that you're sending in, in presenting in love doesn't get through. Even white liberals can't can't get there. Speaks to the the, the power of white supremacy. I would I would think, or am I being well, hyperbolic? Yes. No, and I think that that's the last vestige, right? That people don't think about at all, which is white liberals are also enormously influenced and and beneficiaries of white supremacy. You know, it's just it's just prettier, right? It's just, you know, cuter. It's just more relaxed, you know? <laughs> but it's absolutely um, indelible. So then how do you, is there, is there a way to have these conversations where white people don't get defensive mm -hmm. or how do you okay you said mm -hmm. how is that how do you break through that um well there's a couple of things um the usually in my experience the sort of the way that it works is that particularly if we're talking about white liberals the first thing is oh i feel so bad and then it's like Ugh, i don't like feeling bad so See you later. Next time there's a black square to put up on my Instagram, right? Um, but what I like to encourage is to lean into that, oof, this doesn't feel good. This feels bad. Because if you allow yourself to sit in that, people use the word discomfort. I really want people to feel bad. Like you, you really should feel badly because what the dynamic that is happening is immoral. <laughs> So feel bad, lean into that, because then you're going to figure out a way to not feel bad. Because that's what we do. That's what humans do. We're able to strategize. We're able to, we, you know, our emotions are manipulative, easily manipulated. We can manipulate them. We can change them. We can build on them. We can seek out new language. But, you know, the combination of sitting in the feeling bad and then the work of building new language I think is just so unappealing to so many white folks. Why? Why would they, right? So that's the the first scenario. The second scenario is that there are some folks who come into the world, my husband is one of them, who live their lives, create relationships and language uh, through a, a sort of a, a, a self-awareness and an interrogation um, of of the world around him. You know, oftentimes people, girlfriends and uh, friends said, you know, A, did you manifest him? And B, he's the, he's the white family you deserved, right? Because he, he knows how to decenter himself and his whiteness, right? He is not woke. He thinks deeply and engages deeply with uh, this history and this country and his partner and his child.
he had probably the 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 coolest um game when it came when it came to meeting you you wrote about this i think it was in <laughs> new york magazine um gosh now 9 years ago i think it was where the whole point of the piece was you were writing about how when you were growing up it, you were going to have a black husband and that black husband was going to um help you you know be in your blackness and and everything and it didn't work out that way and here comes your now husband who and i noticed how you put in the piece you dropped some gum on the platform i did did you really drop the gum? <laughs> i truly did do you know the snap out gum the trident snap out gum oh yeah, okay i snapped it out and it fell on the ground it was unchewed <laughs> i absolutely did okay and this guy walks up to me and says, someone's gonna step on that. I was like, um, yeah, okay. And he said, well, I'll bet you a quarter that between now and the time the train comes, this is a subway platform in Brooklyn. Um, you know, I bet you a quarter, someone's gonna step on that between now and the time the train comes. So uh, we're just standing there in silence and watching as people narrowly miss the, the gum. And then you, the train comes, the rumble of the train and someone steps on it. So we get on the train, I give him a quarter. He's carrying an overnight bag. It's a Friday afternoon. I said, are you going away for the weekend to make small talk? Because also handsome. Um, and he said, yeah, I'm actually headed up to Harvard for a conference on race and social policy. Jonathan, <laughs> oh, I listeners, I tell, when I tell you my jaw dropped because I didn't, he said it, it was such ease and without looking for accolades or cookies or I mean it was like so it was just I I didn't realize what such white people existed <laughs> right who just care enough about it to have it as part of their language and their lives and as you write in New York magazine he was going to a conference on race and social policy and you write he had me at race and social policy he did. <laughs> race he and social did. policy um have you read the comments. Good. I stopped reading the comments a long ass time ago on, on places where I write op-eds and essays. Great. So you also follow that rule of like, why walk through a sewer if you don't have to. Um, but I did, this goes back to putting, putting ego aside. There are like 2,800 comments. And I've looked wow. at 2,800 comments as of this for recording. Real? Yes, for real. I did not know that. A lot of them are, whew, whew, chow. Um, but there are a few in here who are basically saying like, you know, perhaps her parents are the reason she's educated or, you know, basically Sorry. pointing out, you know, well, she seems ungrateful. What's your response? I'm sure these are two things you've not, not heard before. What do you say to, what do you say to folks who, who come at you like that? Isn't it amazing how we are, the adoptees are always the ones who are meant to be grateful and to accommodate people um, who are uncomfortable with, with, with questions and concerns that we have raised about our own livelihood. You know, um, kids who are not adopted are grateful. We're all grateful. We all, we all 
show that in different ways, but there's something about the dynamic, you know, of adoption where it's like, especially transracial adoption, where the the assumption is that we would have been on the street with a crack, you know, needle in our arm, um, had we not been adopted by these wonderfully loving, amazing white people. Um, the other thing I laughed when you said the comment about education, because with all due respect to my parents, they, nobody was less interested in, in my education than they were. And I don't mean that because they weren't educated themselves, but because they were hippies, because they were, you know, neither my brother or sister went to college. Um, I, they would not, they couldn't, you know, we didn't have any money. It wasn't like they, you know, they were prepared to send me to college. We didn't have a health insurance. You know, it wasn't. So I went because I wanted so I wanted to learn. I wanted to find something. I wanted stuff. I wanted, I was ambitious, you know. I wanted to be out in the world. Um, and I knew that I had to do that by going to, to college. So so that was on me. Thank you very much. Uh comment or <laughs> <laughs> so I wanna I, I throughout this entire conversation, and especially when you you're talking about um white parents of Black children, adopted Black children, um, and, you know, dealing with the world that their children are going to be going into. And I keep thinking about um, now Vice President Kamala Harris's book, <clears throat> her memoir, um, The Truths We Hold, where she writes um, very lovingly about her, her mother in her memoir. There's one thing, one paragraph in there that just jumped out at me. She writes that her mother raised her and her sister Maya to be strong Black women because that's the way society would view them, even though they are Jamaican and Indian. But her mother, Shamala, understood that her new home country, the United States, was going to look at her two daughters as being black. And I, I would love your thoughts on that and whether that's something that every white parent who is you know, wanting to open up their hearts and their homes to um, a black child, that they have to go into it why, eyes wide open about that fact that they're adopting a black child and what that means for that child. I would say that that what Shamala did is good parenting, right? And I I think that that what often gets lost is in adoption is that it's ways in which you parent involve a certain set of things, which is why I wrote this op-ed to begin with, right? Your kind of parenting involves recognizing the way in which we will be seen and targeted uh, and profiled in this country. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you know, never let us outside or that you or that you translate that into something that makes you feel good. Again, it's about ego, it's about your kid. It's about how to best prepare your child to live a full and uh, and and dynamic and interesting, life. I mean, you look at someone, Kamala Harris, clearly well-parented, you know? Um, and I think that, that 
it's just a matter of um, considering the various words of advice that I have given as part of your parenting. It's it it should be integral to your parenting. Rebecca Carroll. Literally, we could sit here for another few hours and talk about this. This has just been so great and fascinating. Rebecca Carroll, author of Surviving the White Gaze, a memoir, and also um, the author of the Washington Post op-ed that generated this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 